0: Our sermon text this morning is Luke chapter 18, uh, verses 9 to 14. Uh, Yesterday, I had to reach into the vault of sermons I have already preached elsewhere, and this is what came out. So may God bless, graciously bless, the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of His Word. Hear now from the Word of God, Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 9. He also told this parable unjust, adulterers, or or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Thus far the reading of God's word. Well, one of the things that the Bible teaches or really reveals about all of us who are created in God's image, is that we really want to feel righteous. That might sound counterintuitive. The world appears to be full of people who don't care about righteousness. It seems to be full of people who think that righteous is a synonym for boring. In fact, sometimes, if we're honest, we feel like we should be righteous, but we really don't want to. But the root idea behind righteousness in the Bible is meeting the standard and therefore being approved or being in the right. To be righteous specifically in the Bible is to meet God's standard. It is to conform to God's law and therefore to be right in his eyes, with him. And now it's very true that tragically, often people don't care about God's law. We don't really want to meet God's standard at times. But even when we walk the path of disregarding God's law, we are consumed with a desire to feel like we have met the standard. The standard that matters. We are consumed with a desire to feel that we are in the right. Let me give you some examples. We love to win arguments. We love to feel that we are in the right, that we are correct in our opinions, and that that correctness is vindicated before all. We love to receive praise. Hey, you did a good, you met the standard. Good, good job. Good job. We love when people laugh at our jokes, right? Your joke met the standard. There you go. Feels good. We love when we're recognized, when we're honored, when we succeed, when our kids look good, when we know the answer, when we are thanked. We love to be correct in our criticisms We love to be right about what someone else is doing wrong. Now, please hear me. Not one of those things that I've just listed is inherently wrong. It's not wrong to want to make people laugh, right? Or to give or receive encouragement or thanks. It's not wrong to try to succeed. It's not even wrong to criticize or to have an argument if we do it rightly, But lurking behind our desires for these things is a deep longing to feel about ourselves in an ultimate sense that we meet the standard, that we are in the right, that we are righteous. We love it when someone, even if that someone is ourselves in private, declares, pronounces, recognizes, you are righteous. Let me give you one more example. Did you ever wonder why Jesus' enemies went to the trouble of crucifying him? Did you ever wonder that? Jesus was in the custody of his enemies for at least 12 hours before he died. And humanly speaking, it it seems like they could have just paid someone to bump him off, right? But they didn't do that. Why? Why? They wanted to hold a trial. They wanted there to be a verdict. Even as they were disregarding the Ten Commandments left and right, they wanted to feel that what they were doing was righteous. Friends, this is the ultimate reason that all of us, all of us, want to meet the standard want to be righteous so badly. In the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, we read that when God created the first man and the first woman, he created them very good. The book of Ecclesiastes actually tells us that God made man upright. And before the first man and the first woman did anything for God, God blessed them. He set his favor and approval on them. And God's desire was that as the first man and first woman walked in obedience to him, in obedience to his law, to his standard, that they would continue to hear from him, well done, you are righteous like your father, I approve. You and I long to feel, that we meet the standard because we were created to hear God say to us, well done, I declare you righteous. In the Bible, there is actually a special word for declaring or pronouncing officially, judicially, that someone is righteous. And that word is justification or justify. The New Testament was written in Greek. Uh, In the New Testament, the word translated righteousness uh, shares the same root as the word justify. So to justify is literally to righteousify or to declare that someone has the status of righteousness. They are in the right. They are okay. They are approved. They are acquitted. Well, our passage this morning is all about righteousness. Righteousness. It's all about justification. We're told there in verse 9 that Jesus is speaking to some people. In verse 9, the first verse of our passage, Jesus is talking to people who are thinking a certain way about what? Righteousness. And in the conclusion of the parable, the last verse, Jesus talks about one person in the parable being what? Justified or declared to be righteous by God. What I hope to see this morning is that our passage is a parable or an illustrative story told by Jesus about two ways to pursue righteousness. And so with the rest of our time this morning, I'd like to just explore the two ways that the passage lays out that we can pursue righteousness. And then to close by considering how we ought to apply uh, these things to our lives. So the first way that our passage lays out that we can pursue Righteousness is to trust in ourselves that we are righteous. Another way to say this is to be self-righteous. So just so you know, I didn't make this up. Look with me in verse 9. It says, he, Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Right? You see where I'm getting this. And treated others with contempt. And so this is, we might say, righteousness strategy, option one. Trust in yourself that you meet the standard. I have God's approval because I meet his standard. I'm not perfect, but at least I'm good enough for God to approve of me. Now, here's what's really interesting. Many of the people in the gospel of Luke who who take this first righteousness strategy are Pharisees. When we read in history what the Pharisees of Jesus' day wrote, in a lot of ways, they actually had pretty good theology on paper. Many of the Pharisees actually wrote about grace. The Pharisees did not teach that you could be perfect. They taught that everyone needed God's forgiveness. But over and over again, notwithstanding whatever theological correctness they might have had, and their theology was not perfect, Jesus reveals that in their hearts, many of the Pharisees were self-righteous. They had a theology that talked about grace, but the way that they responded to Jesus and the way that they treated other people revealed hearts of self-righteousness. Brothers and sisters, even those of us who who are made righteous through faith in Christ, who are trusting in him. The sad reality is that we can still struggle with self-righteousness. I know because the Bible says so, and I know because I do. So, so what does it look like when we are trusting in ourselves that we are righteous? I'm so glad that you asked. That is exactly why Jesus tells this parable. So from this parable, I want us to see uh, four features of self-righteousness. Four features of self-righteousness. The first feature of self-righteousness that we see in this parable is looking down on others looking down on others. Look one more time at verse 9, right? It says, he also told them this parable, I'm sorry, told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. A trusting in yourself that you're righteous and treating others with contempt go together like PB&J throughout the Bible. Isn't this interesting? The first place to look for self-righteousness is actually in how you treat others. Do you treat others with contempt? That word might literally be translated regard as nothing. Do you have a tendency to have a low view quickly and immediately of others? It kind of makes sense that this would be an outflow of self-righteousness. Because if I think that I'm righteous because I meet the standard, because I'm in the right, then when I encounter others who maybe don't meet the standard, at least not as well as me, I'm going to have a low view of them. I'm going to treat them like they're less significant. Or I'm, I might be kind because that's the kind of guy that I am, but I'm going to feel free not to treat them as I would want to be treated. The first feature of self-righteousness is looking down on others. Uh, the second feature of self-righteousness in this passage is thinking that you're not like others. Isn't that interesting? Thinking that you're not like others. Look how Jesus starts the parable there in verse 10. He says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. A timeout. If you've been to church long at all, when you hear a Pharisee and a tax collector, you think, okay, a pharisee a total jerk and a tax collector a cool guy who gets it right that's kind of what we're conditioned to think but we need to hear this parable the way that Jesus' original audience would have heard it right who were the pharisees the pharisees were a jewish religious group in the time of Jesus who took the old testament very seriously the pharisees were famous for how intense they were about studying Uh, God's law. If you were a Pharisee, your life revolved around studying and trying to obey both God's word and a list of rules that the Pharisees had constructed for themselves around God's word in addition to God's word, so that by not breaking those rules, they would not break God's rules. Now, is it wonderful and important to take God's word seriously? Yes! Unequivocally, We must take the word of God with deepest seriousness. So when Jesus' audience hears a Pharisee goes into the temple to pray, it would be like them hearing a pastor walked into a church to pray. The other character in this parable is a tax collector. Now you may know in, in Jesus' day, being a tax collector was uh, different than sort of being an honest IRS worker. Tax collectors, you may know, they were traitors against their country for cooperating with the Romans, and they were uh, known widely to be selfish and greedy thieves, uh, popular for, I'm sorry, unpopular for extortion, for taking more than they were authorized and keeping the leftovers. So those are the profiles we need to have in our mind when Jesus says a Pharisee and a tax collector come into the temple. Let's see what happens. Look there in verse 11. We see the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Jesus is showing us that when our hearts are gripped by self-righteousness, we start to believe that, that we're really not like other people. I, I, I am not like other men. It's it's God's grace that I'm like this. But but the result of God's grace is that I'm I'm really a cut above. I'm something really special. I'm a standout kind of person. I'm pretty remarkable. People don't always see it. I'm not the greatest in the world. But but really, I'm, I'm not like other men. When we trust in ourselves that we're righteous, the place our hearts immediately go Uh, is to comparing ourselves with others in our minds. Uh, Not too long ago, I was able to tour uh, George Washington's estate in Mount Vernon. Uh, George Washington was an amazing man. Not a perfect man. He had many flaws. Uh, But it goes without saying that George Washington was, in many, many ways, an exemplary, astonishing, successful, influential man. And as I toured George Washington's estate and museum, it was kind of an uncomfortable reminder of something I certainly already knew, which is that I am a really ordinary dude. Like, I am not a George Washington. I'm not one, of a million, one in a million. I'm like one of seven billion. Right? No one is going to be touring my estate when I'm gone. That was not news to me. Uh, but it did really reveal, wow, my, my sense of self-worth depends on feeling like I stand out, maybe not as much as George Washington, but that I stand out from the crowd. And the truth is that George Washington, for all his real greatness, was also just another man, right? The folks giving the tours at Mount Vernon did a great job, I think, both appreciating the genuine greatness and moral uh, gift, courage of George Washington, and, and pointing out that he participated in slavery, right, which is a, a massive moral stain on his whole generation. And I'm not saying that to debunk our first president. I just say to point that to point out, we are all like other men, created in God's image and worthy of dignity, full of glory, terribly marred by sin, terribly But if our strategy for righteousness is to trust in ourselves that we're righteous, we start to tell ourselves that we're really not like other men. We're extra, extra nice, extra smart, extra Christian, extra prayerful, extra disciplined, extra righteous. When our strategy for righteousness is trusting in ourselves, we look down on others and we think that we are not like others. Third feature of self-righteousness is focusing on others' faults. Focusing on others' faults. Look again at verse 11. It says, The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. In what ways am I not like other men? Extortioners unjust literally unrighteous adulterers or even like this tax collector it's noteworthy that in this short prayer a bulk of it is listing other people's sins now listen is it is it wrong to extort yes is it wrong to be unrighteous yes is it wrong to commit adultery yes is it wrong to be greedy yes is it wrong to call sin sinful No, we must call sin sinful. We must side with God against sin. There are many passages in the Bible longer than this that list and condemn sins. Is it even wrong to thank God for preserving us from sin? To say, God, thank you that only because of your grace, I have not fallen into that sin. Is that inherently wrong? No. But you know, what helps me feel like I'm not like other men is focusing on other people's sins. Friend, listen, are you quick to focus on other people's faults? Now, listen, I had to do this to myself writing a sermon, not, can you think of anyone who's really quick to focus on other people's faults? Because when you do that, guess what you're doing? Friends, each one of us, each one of us, God have mercy on me, needs to ask, am I really quick to jump on other people's faults? When, when other people make mistakes, when other people really do sin, when other Christians get things wrong, when your political enemies do something really foolish? Right? Is that like red meat dangling in front of a carnivore for you, right? I have to confess, I am, I am often too quick to pounce in judgment on other people's faults, quicker than I am to pounce in repentance on my own sins, now again, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that it's self-righteous to condemn sin or to note faults or even to criticize. But we need to beware lest we develop a taste for the self-righteous feelings that we can get from focusing on other people's flaws. Right? When you shine the spotlight on someone else's flaws, it can help you to feel like the righteous judge with the spotlight right when when you replay the tapes when i replay the tapes in my mind if i feel someone's wronged me what am i doing but reinforcing to myself that i am the righteous victim really i'm the righteous victim and the righteous judge and the righteous jury and the righteous executioner right uh, friends jesus didn't tell us this parable so we could cheer while he sticks it to the people who annoy us right jesus in love, is telling us this parable so that each one of us, starting with me, 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 why did I pick this sermon? <laughs> am, am, uh, can, can pull the log out of our eyes as, we, see this, as we're, we, we, we notice that we are so prone to see the specks in other people's. We, we do that because it helps us to feel righteous. Uh, friends, it, it's, it's no accident that the Pharisee in the parable, who represents others, Uh, who trust in themselves that they're righteous, spends his time in his prayer dwelling on other people's faults. The third characteristic of self-righteousness is focusing on others' faults. Fourth and final characteristic of self-righteousness is focusing on your greatness. Self-righteousness loves when the attention, even if it's just your own attention, is on what's good about you. Look at verse 12. The Pharisee still praying, quote-unquote praying. He says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Fasting, good or bad, can be really good. Giving, good or bad, can be really good. The Pharisee is talking about genuinely good things, but his focus is on himself and how great he is. His his prayer is so short. It's two verses, but look how full of I, it is, I thank you that I am not like, I fast, I give, of I get. Right? Self-righteousness involves a, a focus on yourself. Right? Have, have you ever been to the gym and seen someone whose favorite piece of equipment by far is the mirror? Right? Do they love working out? maybe, but they really love how they look when they do, right? Just to focus on someone else's faults for now. Friends, listen, especially if you're a naturally religious person, it is so dangerous that we would fall in love not with God, but with how we look in the mirror when we're doing religious stuff. I remember when I was younger reading in Philippians that Paul says, some people are preaching Christ out of envy and selfishness, right? They're they're preaching Christ for for their glory. And I just thought, that's such a, like, what a dumb thing to do. Like, if you're going to live for your own glory, go, go do something more fun, you know? Friends, beware. It is so, as someone who has done it, God have mercy It is so easy to do your religious stuff because you like how it changes your view of yourself and how you like how it changes others' view of you because of how it makes you look in the mirror. Beware, as Jesus says elsewhere, practicing your righteousness in order to appear righteous before men, even if that man is yourself. Here's what we've seen so far. We all long to be declared righteous, to meet the standard, even if we projected God's law. Jesus is showing us two ways to seek righteousness. And the first, represented by the Pharisee, is to trust in yourself that you're righteous. What does that look like? It looks like looking down on others. It looks like thinking you're not like others. It looks like focusing on others' faults. It looks like focusing on your greatness. Friends, in Jesus' wisdom... What does looking at our self-righteousness do for us? It shows us that we are not very righteous. Jesus, in his love, is showing us that righteousness option number one is not viable. You are not trustworthy to be righteous. But the second way in our passage that Jesus outlines by which we might seek righteousness is to humbly ask for mercy. The second righteousness strategy in this passage is to humbly ask God for mercy. Remember how the parable opens. Two men went up into the temple to pray. We've already looked at the Pharisee. Let's look now at the tax collector. Two things we see about this tax collector as he humbly asks God for mercy. What does that involve? Is it just saying a thing? No, it involves two things. First, it involves humbly acknowledging our sin. Humbly acknowledging our sin. Look there at verse 13. It says, but the tax collector standing far off. Did you notice that the Pharisee was standing to himself? the text is slightly ambiguous i think on purpose it's not clear whether the pharisee is standing to himself or praying to himself but he's he's kind of away from the people who are not holy enough for him but the tax collector is standing far off why because he's trying to stay away from the person that is too holy for him the god who's too holy for him he's not seeking some prominent place to stand and pray in a way that draws attention to his greatness He's not looking down on anyone because he knows that he's at the bottom. He's not in the temple thinking, man, so-and-so did this to me. to return to our comments earlier about condemning sin and, and about criticism. We must do both. We must condemn sin. And if you want to have relationship with anyone, you need to learn to constructively criticize them. But there's a world of difference between the arrogant criticism of the self-righteous and the humble criticism of someone who knows that they're a forgiven sinner. Verse 13 says this tax collector wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. Have you, have you ever done something against someone such that you, you can't even look at them? Like you're just like, oh, I'm, I'm so filled with shame. And I know that if my eyes meet their eyes, it's going to be even worse. That's how this man feels. He won't even, he's not going to see God if he looks up, right? But his sense of shame over his sin is deep. He knows that his stealing, his sinfulness, his selfishness is wrong. He knows on a heart level that he doesn't meet the standard. And by the way, what is God's standard? We've been talking about the standard. What what does God want from those made in his image? Well, Jesus summarizes God's standard very plainly for us in the Gospels. It's got two parts. First, love God with your all. And second, love your neighbor like you love yourself. Friends, this tax collector doesn't just think, yeah, I'm not perfect. The Pharisee would have told you that. By, By the way, you need to be perfect to dwell with God. This tax collector knows that he is not righteous in himself. He knows deeply that he hasn't just messed up here and there, that he is a sinner. This other way to seek righteousness, righteousness option number two, it actually starts by acknowledging that we're not righteous in ourselves, that we fall short of God's good standard. It starts by humbly acknowledging our sin. The second thing involved in this humbly asking God for mercy strategy is actually trusting in God's sacrifice. It's trusting in God's sacrifice. Let me, let me show that to you. Look what the tax collector prays. At the end of verse 13, he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And notice he's not comparing himself with anyone else. Uh, The only thing in his field of view are himself, the sinner, as the text literally says, and God's holiness and his need for mercy. When the tax collector says, God, be merciful to me the word that he uses is not the usual word that you would use to ask for, for mercy. It's actually a word that is used very specifically in the Old Testament to describe the sacrifices that God's people would make in the temple to atone for their sins. So literally, you can't see it in English, but this man is, is saying, God... Make propitiation for me. He's saying, God, make a wrath removing sacrifice for me. Make atonement that I don't deserve for me. That's the word that he's using. Uh, He's not just saying, God, you know, could we come to terms about this? Like, I've not been perfect, but I'm trying, right? He's not saying, God, could we just like forget and move on? He's saying, God, I am a sinner. But would you atone for my sins? Would you deal with my guilt? Would you cleanse it? Would you cover it through what's going on in the temple? Right? Where is the tax collector? He's in the temple. And he's using the word to describe the Old Testament sacrifices being made in the temple. He's saying, God, let what should befall me fall on a substitute. Because of your mercy. God be merciful to me. Make propitiation for me. The sinner. Can you see the difference between the Pharisee and the tax collector? They both want righteousness. Uh, They have both come to the temple. Because they know they need to be in the right with God. The Pharisee says, look at me. The reason, God, that you should justify, declare me to be righteousness is right here. It's me. The tax collector says, God, look away from me for my justification. Look at the altar for my justification. I'm praying, God, that you would forgive and accept me, not because of something intrinsic to me, but because of a transaction made outside of me. When I first preached this sermon, I was working for a church as the youth director. And often we would go on trips as a youth group. One time we went to a roller rink and the church agreed to pay for the leaders to go to the roller rink. So as I recall, uh, the youth were given different instructions than the leader's. Right, we told the youth, all right, so the church, because you've RSVP'd to us, has reserved the right for you to come to the role. Like, we've, we've made sure there's a spot for you, but you need to bring money, right? Okay, kid, 12-year-old, are you listening to me, right? You need to bring—no, I'm just kidding. We didn't do that. Uh, you, you need to bring money, right? You need to, to walk into the United States of America and walk up to the counter and give them $15. Say, I'm with North Shore Baptist Church. There should be a spot for me. And on the basis of the $15 that you give them— You can go in. We gave different instructions to the youth leaders. We said, Here's what you do you walk in, you say, I'm with North Shore Baptist Church. They paid for me, and they'll let you in, right? Let me in because of a transaction that you made with someone else. Brothers and sisters, Do you see what Jesus is doing in this parable? The man telling the parable is driving us to himself, to our need for the transaction that the Father and the Son make as the Son dies on the cross. When Jesus dies, he pays for, atones for, our sins. He covers them by his blood. He satisfies the righteous requirement of God. And this tax collector is saying in a seed form, God, don't let me in because of me. Let me in because of that. That is my trust. That is my only hope for being declared righteous. And friends, this is the most amazing news I could tell you this morning. Look there at verse 14. Jesus says, I tell you, this man worked out a plan with God by which he could earn his way back into right standing. Is that what it says? No. It says, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. This man, that day, went home with the verdict from God. Righteous. I forgive. I approve. I am for you. Listen, we, we expect that because we've heard it before. This would have been crazy to Jesus' original audience. It, to them, it, it's like the punchline of the story, and the drug pusher left justified, and the pastor didn't, Right? Two men went to the temple to pray. Both wanted to be righteous. One trusted in himself that he was righteous. The other humbly asked for mercy. And Jesus plainly says, the second man was justified. How should we respond to what we see in this passage? Jesus doesn't leave us to wonder. Look again at that last verse. He says, for... Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Friends, the application of this parable is simple. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. Two ways our passage is calling us to do that. First, This passage is calling us to humble ourselves before God. Uh, The Pharisee in this parable exposes how we exalt ourselves by pursuing a fake righteousness, right? We we spend our lives pursuing standards, trying to meet the standard and therefore be declared okay and approved according to standards that do not eternally matter. This This is a parable about two men who go to the temple. Why do you go to the temple? To meet with God. Friends, all of us have a court date with God in our future. We will all stand before him and receive either the verdict, righteous or guilty. The tax collector in the temple saw clearly what we need to see. When Jesus comes back to judge the world, many of the standards that I spend my life trying to meet won't matter. What will matter most is whether God will justify or condemn. And God's righteous standards that I love him with, his, with my all and love my neighbor as myself, I have not met it. Uh, but if I will humble myself, friend, if you will humble yourself and acknowledge that you have not met God's righteous standard, And ask God to show you mercy because of the transaction that Jesus made with him on the cross. That he offers to you. If you will trust not in yourself, but in Christ for righteousness. You can have it today. This is what, this just blows my mind. This verdict that we spend our lives chasing, I'm approved, I'm enough, I'm, I'm great, I'm righteous, I'm, I'm excellent, I'm exceptional, I'm not like other people. You can have that verdict for free right now from God because of His great love in the gospel. Right? The verdict that our sin has put wildly out of reach. Right? The verdict that we feel like we're going to lose when we mess up, when we're criticized. Uh, The verdict that we feel for a fleeting moment that we have when we succeed. That verdict. Friends, God loves you so much that he sent his son to pay for you to have that verdict. To live under his justifying smile. God promises that if you humble yourself and trust in his son, you can know that God is for you. You can know that he approves of you, that he treats you with the favor that he shows to one who has met the standard, the very love that he has for his son. The first way this passage calls us to humble ourselves is before God. Second, this parable calls us to humble ourselves before others. One of the great truths of Scripture is that the way we treat people made in the image of God reveals how our hearts are responding to God. The parable exposes how our self-righteousness manifests in a lack of humility toward others. None of us walks around thinking, I love God and my neighbor perfectly. But all the time, we lower the bar, we change the standard, We feel that we ourselves are righteous, and we act like the Pharisee. We look down on other people. We think that we're not like other people. We dwell on other people's flaws and dwell on our own greatness. This parable shows how wrong that is. The, The place in the Bible where the doctrine of justification by faith gets most clearly developed is in the letters of the Apostle Paul. And again and again and again in Paul's letters, Paul tells God's people, listen, the grace that God has shown you in Jesus, the undeserved kindness that he's shown to you, that should condition how you treat others. You are called by God to extend that kind of grace to others. Saint Augustine famously said that the the ways of God are three. First, humility. Second, humility. And third, humility. I think Augustine nailed it because as the Lord Jesus says in our passage, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Christian, let's close by applying the good news to ourselves once again. Right? If, if this story has revealed any of your self-righteousness, any of your sin, any of your lack of humility, what should you do? You should cry out, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And guess what? He is. He is. If you're in Christ, you don't shift back and forth between being justified and not being justified. We sure shift back and forth between remembering that and not remembering that. But when we come to God and bring our sin, our pride, our self-righteousness, and say, God, deal with me according to your own steadfast love expressed in the cross of your son Jesus, he's delighted to do it. And we can leave assured once again that we go to to our house justified, righteous in his eyes now and forever. Let's pray for God's help to respond to his grace. God, I confess that I have exalted myself. We confess that we are stuck on exalting ourselves. Wanting to carve out a righteousness for ourselves based on some other standard than your perfect law. Lord, would you forgive us? Forgive us, Lord, for the ways we look down on others. Forgive us for the ways we cherish the thought that we are exceptional. Uh, Forgive us for how we dwell on our virtues and others' faults. Lord, would your grace to us in Jesus, the free justification that you give to all who trust in him, renew our minds so that by grace we love you, we're humble before you, secure in your love, and humbly loving toward one another, willing to extend this kind of grace to each other. God, we, we can't do this on our own. We, we need the help of your Holy Spirit. So have mercy on us. Deal with us according to your steadfast love in Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.